Welcome to Optimal Neurospine Podcast, a podcast about optimizing our brain and spine in health and disease. Each episode, leading neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, educators, patients, spine care, and quality improvement experts discuss their research, experience, emerging science, surgical advances, and insights about how to optimize neurological and spine care. Now, here's your host, Dr. Max Boyacci. Welcome to the Optimal Neurospine Podcast. Today, I have a a really a academic superstar, Dr. Robert Stark. Dr. Stark is currently an associate professor of neurological surgery and radiology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, where he's also director of neurovascular research. He graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University with a distinction in neuroscience. Subsequently, he completed medical school at Albert Einstein in New York, where he graduated with distinction in clinical and translational research. He holds a Master of Medical Science with distinction in neuroscience research as part of the National Institute of Health Clinical Research Training Program. Dr. Stark completed neurosurgery residency at the University of Virginia, endovascular neuroradiology fellowships at Thomas Jefferson University and University of Virginia, and a cerebrovascular and skull-based Fellowship at Auckland University Hospital in New Zealand. He also completed a cerebral vascular research fellowship at Columbia University. He is board certified in neurosurgery and certified by the Committee on Advanced Subspecialty Training in Endovascular Therapies, in brackets, uh, CAST. Dr. Stark has a busy clinical practice performing more than 700 operations each year, specializing in the treatment of cerebral vascular disease, including aneurysms, arteriovenous malformations and fistulas, cavernous malformations, moyamoya disease, carotid and intracranial stenosis, including bypass surgeries, brain tumor, and skull base surgeries. He has an extremely productive laboratory, which is supported by multiple grants, including more than $3 million from the National Institutes of Health to study aneurysms. His research, which we're going to talk to him about, focuses mainly on cerebrovascular pathophysiology, including aneurysm, AVMs, intracerebral hemorrhage, ischemic stroke models. He has co-authored over 700 academic publications in his young career. It's my real pleasure to talk to him about his evolution to becoming a clinician scientist and what are some of the insights and lessons is learned along the way that he can share with with us. Dr. Stark, it's my pleasure to really welcome you to the show. Hey, thanks so much for that. Thanks so much for having me on this. You know, your your podcasts have been amazing in, in helping other neurosurgeons and researchers and and you've got a tremendously impressive career. So it's really an honor to be here, but also thanks to the to you and the community for um, helping with these podcasts that, that are beneficial for so many of us. Thank you for the kind words. Let's start by talking about your current practice. What is your clinical practice like? How much clinical work are you doing and how much research? How is the percentage of time spent in each area? It's a great question. It's always a tough one to to break down because it is a little bit fluid. I do have a busy clinical practice, and I think in most of what I do is open vascular, some tumor, and then endovascular. 
And usually each week I try and block out one full day to spend in the lab. And then probably most of the other time that I dedicate to research is, you know, after hours or in the, in the afternoon when I'm done with cases or clinic. You know, a lot of that is at nighttime, maybe when everyone else goes to bed, after I put my son to bed, I try and catch up on all the other elements. But that's certainly the toughest thing is trying to balance clinical practice, research, family time, time with your friends, all of those things. You have been an extremely successful, by all measures, uh, clinician scientist, even though you're, you're very early in your career. Describe your evolution. Let's maybe start with where did you your motivation come from to pursue academic neurosurgery at such a productive level? That's a great question. I think everybody that's starting out or, or at any level of their career, it's it's important to continue to reevaluate those things. I was a rock climber before I became a doctor, and, and for a long time I thought I was just going to be a climber. And then at some point I realized, you know, I didn't want to be the patient all the time, and I was tired of having accidents. So I, I eventually went to medical school. My dad was an internist, and I always thought in the back of my mind I was going to do internal medicine or emergency medicine. It wasn't until my third year of medical school that I realized, you know, maybe that's not really what I wanted to do. I did all the different specialty areas that I could, trying to think, well, now that I've realized I don't think I want to do internal medicine, what is it that I really want to do? And, and eventually, I realized I really like spending time in the operating room. And then I went through the progression of different specialties, thinking I wanted to do gynecology or ENT. And, and eventually, I really realized the brain and, and neurosurgery is far and away the most interesting. And there's just so many areas that we don't understand and that we can make progress in. Uh, when I was in college, I, I really didn't have an interest in research or statistics or, or molecular biology or those things, although I did you know, some elements of those. You know, it really wasn't until late in my third year that I really started becoming interested in the idea of research because I felt there were so many questions that we had unanswered. And sort of late in my third year, I realized, you know, I really did want to do neurosurgery. And I was also really interested in research and understanding clinical trials and later even basic science. So I decided to um, take time off between my third and my fourth year. I did the NIH clinical research training program, thinking at that time my, my main interest was clinical research, that there were a lot of questions that we could answer to help our future patients. And while I was doing classes in statistics and epidemiology and, and all the things that I didn't have an interest in college, I was also working at Columbia University doing basic science research as well as translational clinical research. And that's when I really realized, you know, again, molecular biology then had real relevance for me. So I, I became a lot more interested in research starting at a cellular level, moving all the way through to a translational level, all the way through to clinical trials. And so I tried to do my best to gain as much experience as I could. And I ended up taking two years off to just dedicate time for research and then continue to work on that as I finished medical school and then pretty much throughout my residency, I tried to make it an element of trying to learn how to operate and be a good surgeon, but also learn and progress my skills in research. So if I was to uh, summarize in maybe one word, well, in two words, maybe like you are open-minded and, and curious, curious about to the point that you took two years off 
to learn what you could and, and explore. And then you explored both the clinical as well as the basic uh, science. In pursuing this, what has been some of the most challenging aspects of trying to do both? So maybe you can also expand on where did you go from there? So you continue research during residency, and then how did you transition that into faculty to continue to to do that? Those are great questions. And, you know, certainly I was very lucky that I was surrounded by great people, you know, that helped me out. The, the most challenging aspect is certainly trying to become a good surgeon while at the same time conduct research and, and learn, say, clinically curious, I guess, as you put it. So I did a number of fellowships. I also did dedicated time in the lab. You know, that was a very difficult thing to balance, especially uh, in two of the years of fellowship because you're clinically really busy. So a lot of times it meant doing experiments at the end of the day, sort of in the afternoon or in the evening. A lot of times it meant, you know, while trying to get my son to bed at nighttime, thinking about these things and writing and reading. And maybe I was lucky at that time that I didn't need lots of sleep because it certainly was challenging to balance all of those things. You know, I was really trying to to make sure that I had all the skills to be a good surgeon, but also be a good clinician scientist, you know, down the road whenever I finally got to a, a real job, I guess you could put it. So what is your current setup for research? And also a second question, how did you end up choosing the research area to work on? Yeah, that's also a great question. You know, when I, again, when I went residency, I had been mostly doing vascular research. And so I, I was very interested in vascular neurosurgery. As soon as I got to residency, I realized I, I really liked everything. I mean, as a junior resident, probably you spend where I train more time doing spine. And I actually really liked doing spine surgery. And, you know, I went through each of the areas again, trying to keep open-minded and say, okay, well, maybe this is what I want to do. And I think at the end, I realized that I still thought that vascular was the most exciting and interesting. And there were so many areas that we still hadn't figured out. And although I really liked doing spine and it, it was more that I just liked operating. The vascular, you know, I really was interested primarily in open vascular. It seemed like the most exciting area to, to fix something that's right in front of you that's often emergent. But it wasn't until later that I that I really started learning about endovascular, which I didn't really have a lot of interest in at first. But later on, you know, I became equally interested in endovascular, realizing that it's just a completely different type of, of treatment options and has its own nuances. And really, there's tremendous ability for us to expand in those areas as well. You know, as far as my research setup. You know, again, I, I think I'm just lucky to continually try and surround myself with great people. I have a clinical research team that helps with patient enrollment, clinical trials. Some of those are trials that we've started, and some of them are trials that other people have started that we contribute to. And some of those are, you know, large randomized clinical trials, some of which are sponsored by the NIH and some of which are sponsored by various companies. And then I also have a basic science or translational team that includes, you know, a primary scientist, Dr. Thompson has worked with me since I've been here, since I started at University of Miami, he, he's great. And then on top of that, having postdoctorate and doctorate candidates, as well as residents, medical students, 
is really a, about surrounding yourself with great people. And they really carry out, you know, a lot of the basic science and, and translational research. So Dr. Thompson is a full-time, like a PhD scientist? That's right. I see. If you want to do basic science, there, there need to be people there every day. You know, you, you've got to be checking on your cells, your colonies. Uh, if you do animal research, you got to have somebody there every day that's checking on those things and helping out. And even if I were to, to check on those things every day, you know, myself alone, that's, you know, an army of one is, is not enough. During my fellowship and residency, I was lucky that I, the department supported me in having some lab space in uh, Dr. Owens' laboratory. Dr. Owens was a smooth muscle cell biologist, tremendous researcher, huge lab, usually more than 30 people in his lab. And, and they were nice enough to give me some funds to have a little space in his lab so that I could use some of his equipment and I would attend his lab meetings. And he was really a, a senior mentor for me, along with people like Dr. Dumont and a lot of the other mentors that I had along the way that were both in neurosurgery and also outside of neurosurgery. So when did you get to the point of hiring Dr. I mean, I assume you pay Dr. Thompson or is the department paying him for you? That's right. So it was really when I took the job at University of Miami that I started hiring other folks for clinical and basic science research. You know, I was lucky that the University of Miami and, and neurosurgery supported me with some startup funds when I started the job here. And then, you know, I basically tried to apply for every grant that I could to get additional funds to try and help, you know, pay for equipment and experiments and research and also salaries because there, there is a lot of costs that's associated with starting all these things. Mm -hmm. For your basic and translational, are you using rodent models or what are you doing exactly? Yeah, so I, I make cells. So we use cell culture, and that includes cultured cerebrovascular endothelial cells, smooth muscle cells, and stem cells. Then we usually, once we have you know substantial results, we consider moving forward in small animal models. So I make aneurysms in mice and rats, and each of those have some pluses and minuses. And then once we have further substantial research, we can consider going ahead in large animal models, which include swine, canine, and rabbit models. But really all of the research, I try and work backwards from humans. So that means we collect blood and tissue from the operating room and the endovascular suite and develop results from analysis of actual cerebral aneurysms, the tissue or blood. And then we try and work back to the cellular environment and then forward, you know, in the last phases into animal experiments. So kind of like the bedside and back, kind of like bi-directional. That's right. You know, myself and, and many other people have made mistakes in starting in cells or, or even starting in animals. And the real problem there is you may develop wonderful results, but then they're not clinically or translationally relevant to humans because obviously those things are different environments and different, uh, different landscapes. So I try and start with humans and work backwards. Talk to me a little bit about the optimal setup. So would you consider what you have now to be sort of like one of the most optimal setups? You know, so if somebody was to try to template off you, they would aim to maybe have a PhD scientist and set things up such that the clinical observation guides the questions that are being asked at a basic level. Yeah, I think that would be 
wonderful and it makes the most sense. If you're clinically doing something every day and your research is in a completely separate area, you're, you're always going to feel like you're getting pulled in two different directions. You know, a lot of times I think the laboratory environment seems to be a, a smooth transition from the clinical environment because, you know, maybe we're taking tissue that we obtained that day and then going over to the laboratory to, to analyze it. So I think it definitely helps if your research interests are embedded in your clinical research. And then, you know, the same thing with moving forward from a translational phase to a clinical study and then eventually to a randomized, potentially a randomized or a prospective trial. If those are your, your everyday patients, you really start thinking about how can I be beneficial for the next series of patients? You know, in the back of my mind, the motivation is always, we've got to be doing things better in the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years than I am now. If I'm doing the same thing in 30 years, I, I feel like I've done a huge disservice to my future patients. So how do you innovate? How do you come up with ideas? You've been very successful. Maybe you can also touch on how your research is currently funded. But how did you, for example, maybe tell the story of how you got your first major grant, which is the R01, which has eluded many neurosurgeons at the assistant professor level? Yeah. So for the grants, you know, that's one of the toughest things. I think most neurosurgeons were not very good at dealing with failure and we're maybe not used to it. Most of us have done well on standardized tests and we, we've, most of us have gotten pretty good grades and we're used to sort of succeeding at each level. The grants is, is very demoralizing. And I think most of the time, people don't get funded because they're just not used to that level of failure. You know, at least if you write a paper, you know, a manuscript on research, you know, it might get rejected from a number of journals and that's demoralizing, but usually you can usually submit it to somewhere else that, that's willing to publish it. And at the end of the day, you have something to show for your work. You've got a publication that you can add to your CV or something like that. The grants is very demoralizing. You know, when you spend a year or years, some of these grants, you know, were, were years in the making and they're not funded. That evening, I always think, man, I've spent so much time banging my head against the wall and working on this and rewriting this. And you really kind of have nothing to show for it in terms of, you know, there's no funds. It's not something that you can put on your CV. It doesn't push your research along. And you spend so many hours working on the grant. So I think my main advice is you've got to have thick skin and you've got to be willing to continually bang your head against the wall. A lot of the advice I got was that if 50 to 80% of your grants are not being rejected, then you're not writing enough grants or you're not submitting enough. I started out with applying for as many of the small grants that I could find in the cerebrovascular field just to try and get some research to get things off the ground, to get preliminary research. And then once I had one or two small grants, then, you know, continue applying for small and medium grants to try and get more funds. And then while I was doing that, and, and once I had developed further preliminary research, I tried to start applying for NIH grants. And that was incredibly demoralizing. I started out applying for the K-12, which I did not receive on two occasions. Then I started applying for K08 grants, which I got completely rejected, all of those. And it's really difficult to keep getting those rejections. But the reality was all of those elements were incredibly important for my development. 
and for my research because it helped me look at my ideas more carefully, develop further preliminary data, work harder, and figure out what I was doing poorly and develop those areas better into an R01. My, my initial R01 submission was not funded and it got a terrible score. And, it, and I remember going home just being very demoralized because I felt, okay, I, I failed at the K08, I failed at the K12, my R01 got a poor score. And then I, you know, I had to go back and work on all those things again. We're not used to that. Most neurosurgeons are not used to that level of complete failure. So if you, if you really want to do research, you've got to be invested in developing preliminary data, working on grants and getting those grants funded. I think one of the questions in here was the, you know, that we were talking about is grant writing. You know, again, that's not just like the research, your grant writing needs to be continually worked on and polished. Each time I got rejected, I, I passed my grant around to mentors, friends, anyone that could help me in any way to try and get input. And then all of those sessions at each of the national meetings, I went and attended the K-12 or the K-08 or the R01 classes to try and get further feedback. And then on top of that, I took the grant writing class at University of Miami, which was incredibly helpful you know, meeting for three or four hours every week to go over and work on your grants to get them to progress forward. You know, without those things, I certainly would not have uh, been successful in, at any level. That is so inspiring to hear. You know, people see you and they see the finished product like you're successful and they don't know everything that you've just told us. They think you just are a magician. You wrote your R01 first past got got funded and you're just gifted and you probably are but it's good to know that your talent plus the hard work a lot of sweat sweat equity there that's really uh talking about the grants so you took a lot of grant writing is, is there any books that you read or anything that comes to mind offhand i didn't read any specific books on grant writing but i, I probably should have you know i i think it's mind-blowing how naive I was when I first was writing grants, how poor my grants were. You know, I, I still have copies of some of those that I look back on every now and again. And going all the way back to the first manuscript I ever wrote for a research publication, I thought the same thing. I, you know, I had a mentor that looked it over and he basically crossed almost every word out. It was completely read and I was, I was very demoralized, but that's part of the learning process. And I, I think that's, that's a hundred percent the truth that there has to be an evolution where you start out at a certain level and you, you've got to improve over time. It's not, you're not just going to walk into success. The K-8 grants, my understanding is 50% of them are funded if you continue to work on it for five years, which gave me tremendous inspiration because I thought after I got rejected twice, I just said, why am I even doing this? It's like a waste of my time. I gave one talk or a, one or two talks at the NIH. They seem to like a talk that I give, which is something along the lines of evolution of failure and path to R01. And, it, and it's really about an hour long talk about how many failures I had before I had some sort of success. So it's easy to see somebody win an award without understanding really like what went into all of that work. You didn't touch on how you innovate. So you still have to be able to come up with good ideas, right? So do you have a formula for that? Or, I mean, how does the ideas come to you naturally in the middle of the night? How, how do you innovate? I mean, I think that is a great question. 
you know, first of all, I would say surround yourself with great people. You know, that was what Dr. Jane always said. A lot of the credit for all this stuff is it's just part of being a, a great team. The second part, I think, is just being clinically curious. You know, every day we're doing things and you've got to be able to question, is this really the best way to do it? You know, why are we doing it this way? Who came up with this? How can we adjust one little thing that, that could potentially have much better results? And so I think that that's, that's the main part is just being curious about what we're doing and questioning why we're doing it and discussing that with, with other like-minded, sharp people on a regular basis. Because certainly I, I can't take credit for a lot of these things. A lot of the things that we do in research are a slight increment or improvement that we get by standing on you know, some giant's shoulders. So I have to give credit to so many of the people that I work with and so many of the people that came before me for a lot of these ideas. So it sounds like the University of Miami is sort of like the perfect environment for you. How did you, what kind of decision-making led you there? You know, how did you choose a faculty position that allows you to thrive? Yeah, that's another great question and a really tough one. Certainly some of it is luck you know, luck and timing. I think for me, the main things that I was looking for was a place that was clinically busy in my area. I wanted a place where they actually needed me clinically. You know, there are some places that are willing to make a job for you, but then you might not have much to do clinically. You know, maybe as a researcher, the latter is better. You know, it might be better to step into a place where you're not clinically busy, at least in the beginning. And over time, you build up your practice, but that gives you a lot more time to work on research. And in hindsight, maybe that was, that was advice that some people gave me that I, I don't think I listened to that carefully, but maybe starting out in a place that's not as busy gives you more time for your research. So I think you have to decide what your really, your focus is in, in those realms. The couple of things that I was lucky with is one reason I took the job at University of Miami is certainly the, the, the clinically busy aspect. Another part was having multiple partners that do what I do. So I think vascular is tough in that if you're going to take stroke call, it's, it's fairly intensive, you know, meaning coming in and on the weekend and after hours is a pretty regular thing. So you've got to have other partners that do what you do to help support you so that you can also get research done and focus on other things. And so I felt very fortunate to have multiple partners at University of Miami that do the types of things that I do and to be able to see them successful in that environment. And then the other element is the infrastructure for what you need, which is always the hardest thing to to quantify. I really wanted to go to a place where either I could purchase or build an angiography suite for research or a place that already had that in place. So that was a real plus of University of Miami is that where my lab is downstairs, there's biplane angiography, Right next to that is an MRI machine. Right next to that is a CT machine. We just put in ultrasound. All of that is for re- it's for dedicated research. And those are pretty expensive pieces of equipment. So when I was originally thinking about that, I was it's a bit overwhelming to think, wow, am I going to purchase some sort of angiography machine and some sort of figure out how I'm going to do MRIs and CTs and things like that? It's pretty, pretty substantial. So I think that was a, a major reason for me taking the job here. So is it possible to have it all, NIH grants, high clinical volume, and a balanced life? 
That, that's also a great question. I think that's the thing that, uh, that I would certainly say I contemplate on a regular basis. It's probably best to focus on one thing. You know, that, that would probably be the advice I would give other people. It's hard to be a great surgeon and a good teacher and do good quality research and be uh, you know, a good family person and, and a good father or wife and also be a good friend to your friends that are outside of neurosurgery. That's a real challenge. And so usually the advice I give people is try and focus on one or maybe two things. It's very difficult to, to do all of those things and also be a leader in, in organized neurosurgery. So, you know, it's probably better to pick one or two things and focus on, on those. I think we all learn in training that we're not supposed to have balance, that it's supposed to be sort of like drinking from a water hose. But I think that having some element of balance is extremely important because if you're just always focused on work and you're always banging your head against the wall at work, then you're going to be very one-sided. Obviously, those other parts of your life are going to be crumbling. But on top of that, I think your work really crumbles as well because you don't have those outside influences that are so important and helpful. You've written over 700 papers in academics. Publications are obviously the currency. What is your process for writing? When do you write? Do you write a little bit every day? Are there any strategies that you'd like to share? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, again, it certainly helps to be surrounded by great people and have, a, have an amazing team. And I collaborate with so many people at University of Miami, but also at so many other institutions. So that that's obviously incredibly helpful. I probably do some writing a little bit every day, but a lot of it happens when I feel like I had, can really focus. And a lot of times that's at nighttime after, to be honest, after my son goes to bed and I can kind of have, you know, real, real peace and quiet and focus. You know, I do think it's important not to, not to get too focused on the quantity of publications. The, the main focus, you know, obviously should be on quality. I certainly can say that my publications, you know, really range from case reports all the way through to to rigorous studies, but I think it's it is important to, you know, maybe have some element of all of those. You know, you want to focus your time, but I think most of us would would trade one in New England Journal of Medicine paper or one Nature paper for hundreds of case reports. So that's that's an important thing to think about as well. So, which research and uh, publications would you say you're you're most proud of? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Probably the, the one that I'm most proud of it was a very long, drawn-out team effort looking at the molecular mechanisms by which cigarette smoke contributes to cerebral aneurysm formation, progression, and rupture. And I think that that project was ongoing, you know, that just for that single publication, that was at least five years or more of work. And it involved many people lots of different scientists, lots of people from expertise in different areas. But I think in, in that publication or in that set, you know, many series of, of experiments, we found that environmental factors like hemodynamic stress, hypertension, and smoking contribute to vascular injury. And we assessed the molecular mechanisms by which that leads to aneurysm formation, progression, and rupture and identified key molecular 
alterations within that process that we could then look for for future inhibitors to thwart that process. You know, with the idea that potentially we could develop a medication or a better minimally invasive treatment option or molecular imaging that would help identify at-risk aneurysms and also develop better treatments for them. How important has mentors been in your career development? Maybe you can talk briefly about your relationship. How are you a good mentee? And, you know, do you meet with them like once a month? How have you been using mentors in your development? Yeah, that's another really important one. And, you know, when I give a talk, I always put up a slide of all my mentors and it's, it's tremendous. How many people, you know, I really consider a mentor that helped me many of which are inside neurosurgery, but many of which are, are in such different disciplines outside of neurosurgery. And I think that's really important for your research to get outside perspective. And it should be, some of those people need to be completely outside your area. I've always been happy to ask for help. So I've continually sought out more mentors, especially when there was something that I didn't have experience or I didn't understand. So even though Dr. Owens might have been my primary mentor at University of Virginia, I also had Dr. Dumont, who is a, who's a vascular neurosurgeon. And then there were a lot of models and things that I was interested in that, that they didn't have expertise in. So I went and visited, I actually spent a week at UCSF with Dr. Hashimoto at the time, learning more about aneurysm models. Down the road, I went to Iowa with Dr. Hassan and spent time with him learning more about his methods and how he looks at research. Even as a faculty member, I went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester and spent time, multiple sessions with uh, Dr. Kalmus, looking at his models and how he, he does his research. And over time, I've, I've really tried to visit other areas to see how people do things, especially if it was something that I didn't know about or I needed or wanted to gain expertise in. Those people really have become, you know, mentors and friends and that I can call them when I'm having problems, issues, troubleshooting. And that that goes for research, but also goes for grants, you know, and other life areas, obviously. So you really got to surround yourself with multiple different people. And, you know, I think ideally you would meet with them as much as you can. You know, that might be daily you know, if you're doing a dedicated year of research, maybe you're lucky enough to meet with them every day or every other day, but certainly at least once a week. And then, you know, meeting with them one-on-one, but also having overall lab sessions is important. And then, you know, Zoom and all these things have really created an environment where you can regularly catch up with people at other institutions. So I still like to have meetings with all these different people as best I can to push my research forward Obviously, it needs to be a two-way street. As a mentee, I try and help them in any facets that I can. And, you know, the last aspect of your question was, I think being a good mentee means working hard and being curious and doing your best to complete your work, but also bring something to the table so that their investment in, in time is, you know, seeing you improve and get better, but also helping them in some facet if it means helping their research as well. Looking back in your young career, uh, any obvious mistakes or regrets? Is there anything that you would do differently that would have made your trajectory even more fun and more efficient? Yeah, that's it. That's a great one. I think going way back, you know, I wish I had learned more about molecular biology and statistics, you know, in high school and college. Although 
you know, I, I did have those opportunities. I just wasn't interested in it at that time because it wasn't clinically relevant yet. I mean, now I'm very interested in those things, but mainly because they're, they're relevant to me. So potentially starting earlier and gaining techniques, methodologies, all those things would have been beneficial. The other thing is you obviously got to be careful in balancing your time. And when you like to operate, that does make surgery more difficult. So you, you really have to block out time to do your research. And I think most neurosurgeons are worried when they start their job that they're not doing enough and they're not contributing enough. And I remember meeting with my chairman and saying, you know, how many cases would you like me to do in my first year or first three years? And he said, I think 100, 150 sounds pretty reasonable, which would sound like a low number to me. And I was, I think, like many young neurosurgeons, worried about not doing enough cases, not having my operative skills progress fast or fast enough and developing clinical volume. But at the same time, once it's there, it's very hard to turn that faucet off. And it's hard to go back and make more time for research once all of those things have, have really been put into place and you're clinically very busy. Let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about the development of clinician scientists. First of all, why is it important to train clinician scientists? And, and, and what is the future of the clinician scientist training pathways? Those are great questions. I mean, I think people that are working with patients every day really get an understanding of what's clinically relevant and how we can do better in terms of patient care. It's hard to balance that with basic science, meaning being a good basic science scientist with, with doing clinical aspects. But some merger of that, I think, is really where we're going to develop the major breakthroughs that change how we're doing things. It's looking back at a procedure and saying, wow, we didn't really do a good job of this. We've got to be able to do this better. That leads to the innovation down the road to really change things. And, you know, like I said, it sounds trite, but I'm constantly thinking about I've got to be doing things better in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. It would be a huge disappointment if I was doing things the same way 30 years from now. As far as developing clinician scientists, I think that's, that's a real challenge because it's very hard for people to have the environment to develop as good, technically proficient surgeons, meaning devote enough time to learning surgery and being a good surgeon, and also devoting enough time to develop as a, as a scientist. There are a number of programs through the ANS and CNS that help with that. And it may start with just a seminar at a national meeting, but they also have the Young Clinician Program, which I was really lucky to benefit from, which met at each of the major national meetings. So we met many times a year to go over our grants. And it also paired me with senior clinician scientists like Dr. Zipfel and other people that were really helpful in guiding me in the right direction. And that meant research, grants, all of those things. You know, so again, senior people that devoted time to help me succeed. And, you know, in turn, mid-level and senior faculty needs to continually turn around and try and give that that time back or pay it forward for, for the next series of people that are going to come through. Because the major breakthroughs are, are undoubtedly going to keep coming from people that are younger than I am. So for young faculty, your advice would include taking advantage of the CNS and WNS developmental pathways, and then maybe also looking for some K awards. I think the Academy also has a career development grant, right? The ABNS or the Academy? Yeah, that, that's right. And the Young Clinician Investigator Program was really tremendous, is really through the ABNS. So 
it was the American Academy, you know, senior senior leaders in neurosurgery that got together and said, you know, we should develop a program to help young clinician scientists. And I was very lucky to be able to get involved in that and meet with those senior people on a regular basis that helped push me along. So that's another thing for people to look look into. So can you summarize three pearls or secrets to an extraordinary career as a neurosurgeon scientist? What would be your top three? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say Number one, surround yourself with excellent people. And that, that needs to be mentors, collaborators, inside the field, outside the field, researchers, students. You've got to surround yourself with excellent people. Your research probably has to be, to some degree, a hobby as well as a profession, you know, so that you're thinking about it in your free time as well as your work time. And you know, there has to be some element that blends those two together, and it has to be something that you actually enjoy doing. You've got to read in your own field, but also in other fields to figure out what are other major breakthroughs? How do people get there? How do they fail and how do they succeed? And I think the last thing, you know, maybe I'm adding four is, is you've got to learn and improve for your own failures. We usually see people in their successes, you know, meaning their awards and things like that. But it's usually there's, that means they've had a tremendous amount of failure before getting there. So you've got to learn from your own failures, but also other people's in your development as you go along. And I guess my next question is um, advice to current clinician scientists that are struggling. So let's say you get an assistant professor job at, at a good place or reasonable place, but you're struggling. You've gotten your grants turned down. You are now five, six years out. You don't have a K award, you don't have a hour one. What is your advice when you get yourself and you feel like life may be passing you by a little bit, you're a little bit behind, you have a couple of colleagues that already have their hour ones or their Ks, and you're sort of like feeling a little bit behind the ball. What are some of the advice you have for clinical scientists who find themselves in that situation? I guess the other corollary is being mid-career and losing, you had initial grant funding, but then you lost it and you're struggling. Yeah, I think the best advice that I got, because I, I was very worried about all those things, and you know, when I kept getting my rejections, was focus on doing good research. And that really came from Steve Korn at the NIH. He really pounds that through. If your focus is not on the grants and it's not on the funding, the, the money, and it's not on the publication, if your focus and I mean this honestly, is on doing good research, those other things will come. Now, they may not come right away because, as I said, probably the the publication I'm most proud of took more than five years of work. But if that's your main focus, you will get there eventually. There are programs for um, people that are even late in their career that realize, I really want to go back and do research. I think a number of the, the really big scientists started late in their career and they, they took courses and programs through the NIH to go back and learn more about research and develop a research career late. So I think anytime is possible. One of my other biggest mentors was Dr. Edward Oldfield. And you know, for the folks that, that aren't familiar with him, he was the, the director of neurosurgery at the NIH and research for almost 30 years. And he's probably the, the most cited or up there in terms of the most cited neurosurgeons of all time. An interesting thing is that Dr. Oldfield started in private practice in in Kentucky in neurosurgery and had no real background and limited research experience. 
And he had been in private practice and realized he had a lot of clinical questions and he felt very unsatisfied with his work. And so eventually he went back and got an academic job and then eventually started working at the NIH, even though he took a, a, a substantial salary cut and over time became this tremendous leader in academic neurosurgical research. But of course, we all see the finished product and think, oh, he just took a linear trajectory. The reality is most of us or many people, it's a very circuitous path and you can always change directions. Wow, that is an extraordinary uh, story. That's really incredible. Dr. Stark, my final question to you is a question I ask everyone. It's a magic wand question. So if you had a magic wand, how, how would you improve the process of developing successful neurosurgeon scientists? And I know we've talked about some of the things, but if you had unlimited resources, a magic wand, what are some of the things that you would do? Yeah, that's, uh, man, that's another great question and definitely a tough one. I, I think one of it is time. All of these things require a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to develop the technical skills to be a good surgeon, but it also takes a lot of time to develop the skills to be a good researcher. So, you know, during your training, before your training, after your training, you've got to be able to make time for the research part to develop those skills and look outside the box that you're in. So expanding the time window for those that really want to pursue those trajectories, you know, maybe that means having more protected time to do research if that's something that's really going to be important for them going forward, which is not all residents. On top of that, you know, we talked about the young clinician science training pathway. You know, that was incredibly helpful and beneficial to me. And I have to give a lot of credit to all those senior members that came up with that idea and then also invested time to make that a reality. More workshops to help young scientists develop, put them on the right pathway and help them when they develop roadblocks or failures. I think the main thing is it's just so easy to give up on all these things. There's so many top, there's so many easy outs and, and ways to say, you know what, this is too difficult. It's too much time. I'm not going to do it. So having all these other things in, in place to support clinician scientists so they, they, they can be successful. That is really awesome. Really want to thank you for really uh, very valuable insights for sharing some things that you've learned along the way that I suspect is going to be really helpful for young and old clinician scientists. Really appreciate it. It's really been an incredible hour speaking to you, Dr. Stark. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me and thanks so much for investing you know, your time in, in these podcasts and to helping others you know, along the way. Certainly, I hope that this will help at least a few people or a handful of people that were sort of struggling at the same points that I was. So thanks again so much and uh, wishing you and your team all the best. That's awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Optimal Neurospine Podcast with Dr. Max Boachi. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you share it with others. Leave us positive reviews on social media or leave a rating and review on iTunes. Check out our website, maxwellboachi.com slash podcasts for show transcripts and other information. Join us next time for another edition of Optimal Neurospine Show. Spine Show.